Welcome to Reputation Town. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Reputation Town podcast. This is Warren Weeks, and I'm joined by John Paranak. John, how's it going? Hey, Warren. Uh, freezing cold. Freezing, freezing cold. We can't complain. It's, it's, winter, been, so. it's been a pretty modest winter so far. It has been, but I'm still going to complain. All right. Here we are. There you go. Um, you are, you're downtown. You're not in your home studio. So just in case anyone's wondering why you sound a little different than usual. Indeed, indeed. I'm in a, in a WeWork. It's one of those sound isolation booths. We got a couple stories uh, cooking. We're, we uh, the Loblaw one. I think people grocery prices have been uh, a really big story over the last couple of months, and there's a lot of stuff going on these days. We're going to save that one. That's going to be the anchor of the program. We'll wrap up with that. Uh, but before we jump into the first story, which is the uh, Vancouver Canucks and Bruce Boudreaux, anything happening off topic? that you wanted to throw into the mix? We, I was listening to your other podcast, and um, you, you, were, you had interviewed the food professor. Uh, it was Sylvain Charlevoix, I believe mm. his name is, right? Yeah. And, and he pointed out on Twitter something really fascinating, that there was a, a um, food processor the Chinese government built or something in Kingston that's processing Canadian milk for export. To the uh, uh, overseas, I guess. I, just, I think it, I think it is just amazing that um, more isn't being looked at in terms of the amount of foreign investment that's happened in our housing industry, housing businesses like that. And just there's a, there's a crazy story set of stories that I think need to unwind. Um, but every time we see one of those little tidbits, I think, oh my god, what what is, what is happening? Anyway, that's that's where my mind is being. He, yeah. he's an interesting guy and uh, he the the amount of social media stuff that he puts out the content he puts out he's very prolific and it's not a sexy industry and I mentioned that on the podcast it's not like you're doing makeup or or movies it's it's groceries it's food but he he's been at this for a long time and I, th- I think what you're talking about speaks to the deterioration of journalism over the last couple of decades mm. like why is nobody covering this right there's there's a lot of stuff probably happening that we should know about as citizens that we don't. And uh, uh, I think the Tim Horton, we're going to talk about the Tim Horton story as well. And there's a journalism element to that too. So the first one we're going to chat about is uh, Vancouver Canucks. So anyone in the hockey world, you'd probably know the name Bruce Boudreaux. He's been around for years and years and years. And recently there was some controversy around the way that he was uh, sacked by the team the rumors had come out uh, ahead of time. It was a really poorly kept secret. And then basically when they played their last home game, everybody in, in everyone in the building, everyone on TV knew that this guy was going to be fired. Uh, the, the president of hockey operations and the GM had done some really terrible interviews and basically lying to the public. And then um, you have now he was officially fired on January 12th, no, 22nd. And, um, the team has been just getting uh, ransacked in the media. So we haven't chatted about this. I know you're a big hockey fan. We're in the hockey pool together. You kicked my butt last time we, uh, we, we played each other. But what's your take on the Bruce Boudreaux situation? Um, what, what, what can organizations take away in terms of how you deal with your employees in the public, in the public eye? So my, my quick takeaway is I'll, fundamentally this is a management issue. And 
what they ended up doing was um, repeatedly expressing their displeasure with the guy <laughs> publicly and, and leading everyone to think, well, I guess they're going to fire him. And then they didn't. And then they would be asked about it and they would sort of obfuscate or, you know, uh, express further displeasure. And then it just got to the point where it was a bit of a, and it, there were like other candidates being talked about publicly. And so what happened was what should have been team wasn't performing well. So management acted, fired coach, got new coach, you know, but we're better, 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 better for it. People started feeling sorry for the guy <laughs> because he was being beaten up in the public so much. And then the team looked, team looked like they were incompetent at the end. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, that's my, you know, sort of a quick sketch of it. What, what, how did you see it? So there, obviously the team, they say that every coach, I forget who said it was it Paul Maurice that every coach is is hired is eventually going to get fired. That's how you usually end up leaving the job. But um, <clears throat> the president of hockey operations for the Canucks, Jim Rutherford, did an interview, and uh, this was the quote that he gave, uh, and it was just a couple days before the firing. All I can say is that Bruce is our coach right now, but with that, I'm calling and talking, but I don't know that we're making a change, and we don't want to make a change. And at this point, they had already figured out who the next guy was going to be, Rick Tockett. So the guy's basically lying in the public and to the media. And I think that's the kind of thing that when we, we talk about from a, a issues management, crisis management, tell the truth the first time or handle your operations in a, in a better way. So uh, it, it is really weird that I can't remember a coach having been terminated who had such goodwill. Like when you think of when Mike Babcock got canned from the Maple Leafs, he was public enemy number one. There were mm-hmm. all the stories came out about how uh, just very spiteful and vindictive guy. And you saw the pictures of him packing up his truck and leaving town. And they ended up paying him, you know, tons and tons of money after the fact. And here you have uh, one where the players are crying. People are crying. He's crying. He said he got over 500 texts on his phone from former players and other coaches and people. And then you see this press conference with these like three bald white dudes. Well, I think they're all bald. eh? And they're sitting at the table and just, they just looked like they absolutely didn't want to be there. And, and so this is the kind of thing where like life is hard enough. Business is hard enough. You don't need to kick yourself in the nuts by lying to the media. So that'll be the lesson. You know, the the point of this podcast is the reputation because they weren't direct and transparent. Um, that does not bode well for the next thing as, as the management team goes forward. You know, how, how are people going to trust them and believe them? And if you, if you didn't want like the, the solution to those sort of internal matters is often, look, we're not, we're, it's an internal matter. We're not going to discuss what we're doing with our coaching staff. He's our coach. End of story. Either say nothing or make the change and, yeah. and, and, and don't, don't dither, um, and uh, and then you know drag things out the way they did. They, they could have easily fixed it. Let's just say, for argument's sake, it was taking them a long time to 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 get to terms with the new coach mm. behind the scenes. Well, you say nothing until you have the terms in place, and then you yeah. make the change. Yeah. Like it just is pretty simple. And it's got to be bad morale for the team. Like they're there to try to win games. That's their excuse for firing the guy. Like, look, we're not going in a good direction. We want to fix it if you're a player or a coach and you see that that's the way they're treating people, is that, is that going to make you feel better about the organization? It's got to be kind of a cancer in the, uh, in the dressing room. So 
Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't really care whether the Vancouver Canucks do well or not. We are, have our own hockey problems here in Ontario, but um, just <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting to see that you assume that these organizations, these large multi-million dollar organizations, have their act together, and we see so many instances where they don't. So that's just one. Um, you had sent over uh, a link to uh, a news clip about milk. Do you want me to play that? Yeah. Does it need a lead-in, or do you want to just play the clip and then talk about it? Well, okay. So, so the, the, um, there was a story that was kind of widely discussed or widely talked about online. Anyway, from from where I said, and so the little information silo I have, um, where it was a dairy farmer, and he was um, basically dumping what thirty thousand liters of milk down the drain because he was beyond his quota and be, because things like dairy are supply managed government empowers uh, the industry to to control the prices of the product by controlling the supply and and as a result everyone pays higher prices for milk and cheese and you name it turkey and mm-hmm. there's like 20 plus of these supply management organizations in this case the milk milk one has been you know, front and center for a very long time. And so that's the, the, the background to the story. All right, and here's the clip. An Ontario dairy farmer is now sharing on social media what it feels like for him having to dump excess milk. They make us dump it. And no matter how we stand up, so this time I'm going public. I want the people to see the pain that us growers have. Of 365 days as a little boy, we grew up on a dairy farm, came from Europe, work, work, work. And here we are. This is what's happening. Yeah, so that's Jerry Hugan from Dunville, Ontario. He posted this emotional video to TikTok saying he's forced to dump about 30,000 liters of extra milk at the end of the month because of government regulation. Hugan says his dairy cows produce more in the winter, but he's not allowed to sell it. That's because dairy production in Canada is controlled by a supply management system to overcome production surpluses. He says there are places this milk should go, including food banks. Okay, that's the story. So um, tough to watch, but there's this is a complicated issue. Like, I don't know a lot about the farming business, but I think it's a little more complicated and nuanced than we're seeing there. Like, no one wants to see that kind of story. You think, couldn't you give this to food banks, like he said at the end, or donate it? Um, but as you mentioned, it's a really highly regulated uh, supply and management system. And I think the farmers, if I'm not mistaken, are the biggest beneficiaries of that because if all of it went on the market, the prices would go way down. A lot of them would go out of business. So um, why do you think he did this? And is this guy going to end up in a landfill somewhere <laughs> from the dairy cartel? <laughs> well, there, there are some uh, there are some farmers who don't agree with supply management. And, and over the years, you've seen uh, different attempts to try and to go around supply management and, you know, sell your products separately or, or but, but the government, because it empowers these supply uh, production management organizations, um, with by regulation, it's not the government directly doing it. It's, it's they're giving the, the abilities of, the, of these um, supply management organizations to do it. They, the farmers really who, who want to break with it really can't. Ultimately, though, and this is where I think it, the reputation of the farmers um, should be scrutinized more heavily. And you know, I actually am thinking to your point you made about you know the lack of media these days, uh, the way media are going. But you know, I look at so when this uh, last NHL season started, they they started uh, allowing advertising on jerseys. And who is the premier advertiser on the Toronto Maple Leafs jersey? But the dairy farmers of Ontario. 
So we, we control, we, we limit the amount of milk that can be produced so that prices for families are higher so that there's giant surpluses in this supply management organization so they can then advertise on the Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. Like, it doesn't make sense, and I think it's a reputational disaster for that organization. And I think, frankly, what's probably going to happen is the days of the supply management are, are, are probably numbered um, because, you know, people should be getting upset over the fact that, you know, this is what, you know, every family pays more for. It just, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. But I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm straying from uh, reputation into policy. <laughs> but it's, uh, someone had mentioned, I think some, someone on Twitter had mentioned about this farmer that he's going to be getting a visit from the, uh, the dairy folks telling him to kind of cool it because this is, Oh, no question. It creates, no question. it creates, it ruffles feathers. Right. And, um, <clears throat> when I was talking to the food professor guy, one of the things I mentioned was the, the lobbying and marketing efforts of the, of the dairy industry, like they're into all the schools and all those milk days and the calendars and the little stickers that they're handing out to kids. It's a really concerted effort to shove this product down everybody's throat. And I don't know, like when's the t- last time you had a glass of milk? Never. The, they spend millions and millions on advertising to, you know, sort of whitewash, greenwash. What, what term do we want to use? Well, the whitewash, industry. I guess, because of its milk. Yeah. Right? Unless it's yeah. chocolate milk, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm bum. Uh, but but uh, I think that uh, this is the kind of thing where there should be greater scrutiny. And if and if ultimately farmers will say, oh, we need we need this because it it, it preserves the um, the standard of living for farmers, so that small there can be smaller farmers. You don't just end up with you know giant conglomerate farms. And uh, you know what? Okay, fine. I think there's there's, there's some argument there, but. But I, I also think um, the system, um, the system, the way it's structured, is not doing any favors to the reputation of, of farmers. All right, want to move on to the Tim Hortons story? Uh, are you a Tim Hortons fan? Well, I consume their coffee. <laughs> Does that make me a fan? I guess you're. So you're. I don't, I don't know. I, I. I. Yeah, I'm a Tim Hortons. I. I. I I'm there. All it's an time. easy question. Just <laughs> yes or no. <laughs> So Tim Hortons, uh, very interesting company, started by this hockey player who played for the Leafs, purchased from him by um, a friend slash colleague, grown into this billion-dollar organization, and sold. Now, uh, they fly the Canadian flag all the time, but they're not owned by a Canadian uh, company anymore. Anyway, there was a class-action lawsuit last year that claims that Tim Hortons sold geolocation data of its app users and there was the privacy watchdog that um, said that there was highly personal information that was taken about customers and sold without their consent. And the ruling has just come down from this class action lawsuit from the Superior Court of Quebec. And for this massive privacy breach of highly valuable personal information, what do each what do, what is each person entitled to? A coffee and a donut. Only in Canada. So what do you make, and and going back to what we said earlier about journalists, I don't know if you know, but this story was actually broken by a journalist initially. Are you aware of how the story came about? So there was a reporter for the Financial Post. I think his name is uh, James McLeod. Is that the guy? I'll have to double check the name. 
Anyway, he had done some research into this app and found out that it knew where, when he was at home, when he was at work, when he was on vacation, and it even knew when he walked into a competing fast food restaurant. So it had a ton of information about all these people. Uh, they didn't know that it was being taken, and Tim Hortons allegedly took this information and sold it. I said I should use the word allegedly. Anyway, um, Tim Hortons is... Uh, the case file says that the allegations have not been proven in court, and they're actually being contested by Tim Hortons, but the fast food giant agreed to the settlement terms nonetheless. So they're not they're not saying that they're guilty. They're not saying that they did this, but they're hoping that everybody gets a coffee and a muffin and they'll that they'll go away. Not the first scandal that uh, this organization's been been hit by. Uh, it, but it seems from the outset that this is going to be another one of those just like little speed bumps in their growth, and everyone's going to forget about this by tomorrow. What, what's your take? I kind of feel the same way, you know, you mentioned the ownership. So yeah, the company was actually owned by a Brazilian led, um, uh, equity, a private equity fund. And it, it just kind of feels like this is one of those things where they thought they can get away with another revenue stream by selling user data from the app, but they, they obviously, um, didn't think that through. Unfortunately, for a lot of these, a lot of these issues in in uh, Canada, small market, big companies, they don't really have to do much. To deal with these these speed bumps they run into there that that have reputational impact because people don't have a lot of options um, when it comes to um, or uh, no, probably maybe different because you know in my mind I was heading down the road of banking or you know, uh, phone companies, those are obviously stickier things, harder to change your service. I can easily go to another coffee shop if I want to, but you're right. I think, I think most likely what'll happen is people, people generally won't even hear about this as an issue. Although they, they should hear more about it. And uh, those who do hear about it will probably just be happy. They got a free coffee donut and and move on. And it's, it's sad to say, but I think that's, that's, um, We've seen it before. Sometimes there needs to be that catalyst or, you know, sort of confluence of the story with the timing and the sort of personalities involved. And it becomes like a firestorm. Mm -hmm. And this has, this has like maybe some of those elements, but it doesn't feel like it's got all the things that turn it into that viral that water cooler exactly that viral story that becomes just topical for every everyone which is kind of sad because if you think about the this is one journalist who looked at one app can you imagine all the other bs on our phones and what's being done and the stuff you even hear about tiktok it's supposed to be the most invasive of all like apparently the are you on tiktok do you have an account Mm -hmm. okay so it's pretty it's pretty addictive like they've got a great algorithm there but they say that in addition to going through all your emails and texts and photos and everything else that they can actually track keystrokes that you're making on computers that are not connected to your phone, which is, which is nuts, but we just, we just click. Okay. And so um, it, it's interesting. So you have this one. And then while you were speaking, I looked up his name and it's James McLeod from the financial post did this initial investigation. And this is just a reporter kind of poking around and it ended up in this uh, class action lawsuit. So anyone who used the app from April 1st, 2019 
to September 30th, 2020 was entitled to this, uh, this ridiculous coffee and a, and a, and a donut thing. And there was a guy who said on Twitter, I wrote down his tweet. Okay. So Tim Horton spent more than a year silently and illegal tracking users through their mobile app. And the proposed class action lawsuit settlement is a coffee and a donut. I swear to effing God, this is real. And this is from a lawyer. So it's gotta be <laughs> official. Um, but what- well, I, I was talking to somebody in they're in the digital advertising business and they said that the number one app that completely sells all its data about location is one of the weather apps. I think, it, I think, I don't know if it was like the native iPhone weather app or if it was like the weather network weather app, but it was, it was, it was because everyone wants to know what the weather is. You were typically going to install the weather app and then it just leaked information constantly. And they, they monetize that on the back end. I guess not surprised, you know, but uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. it's, it seems like these large companies, if you look at the Bells and the Rogers and the Tim Hortons, um, and we're going to talk about another one in a second, but it just seems that when you get to a certain size, you can kind of just do whatever and you, your response doesn't even need to be that great. And it's like, oh, okay, well, like, like the Via Rail from a couple of weeks at like, Christmas time. And now, no one's talking about it. The trains are running. And just like, what are you going to do? Which is kind of, uh, you know, that would never be your strategy to propose in a boardroom. It's like, hey, let's ignore it. <laughs> let's just, let's wait three weeks to send out our apology. You would never advise that, but it seems to be working <laughs> for them, which is kind of uh, frustrating. Okay. The finale for today, it's going to be a short episode, I guess, is um, Loblaws. So, Grocery prices have been high, um, up and fluctuating since the the pandemic, but the whole inflation and interest rates, and we've seen these photos, a journalist will take a picture, I think we all saw in Canada here, the $37 chicken breasts and the $42 Caesar salad, these outrageous prices in the grocery stores. So uh, do you kind of want to set this one up in terms of how the company's been handling this from social media and what we're going to be chatting about today? Well, we, we, you and I may have sort of different aspects, but the one, there's a couple of different things I wanted to highlight. Number one was like just their strategy of how, how they're using social media to deal with this. So that's one thing I think we be interesting to talk about. And then I think it's also interesting to talk about uh, the message they're, they're using because I think those are two separate, separate topics. Um, so those, those, those are the key things that I think um, would be interesting to dive into. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. So, okay, so just strategy-wise, you know, I found it interesting that, so what Loblaws is, what appears Loblaws has been doing is they've decided to, like they've been wearing price increase, and why that, why is why has that been happening? Well, they're the largest grocery uh, operator in Canada. Obviously, it's a very concentrated market. You know, you've got Metro and Sobeys and Loblaws, the three, three largest ones. And, you know, record profits, big bonuses being announced for, for um, executives at different companies. And I think, um, I think it's, it's, there's an obvious reason why they're, they're, they're front and center when it comes to higher prices because the prices are going up and people are, you know, it's facing them every, every week when they shop, uh, the impacts of, uh, of inflation. But, it's not as it's not as clear as oh it's just it's just all of our hands you know I think um, there's evidence to show that the companies themselves have been raising prices, increasing their margins, and that's led to these these higher profits. So they 
So they, they, they're owning this regardless. But what they've decided to start doing is uh, on social media, it looks like they're going in and actually responding to pretty much anyone or everyone who's talking about them and basically saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, no, that's wrong. We're not, you know, this isn't us, uh, which I find just bizarre that they would be taking that approach. Uh, what was your reaction when you started seeing that? Well, it's interesting because uh, this is not uh, this is not a company that has been really, um, how would you say, eager to speak with the media in the past. So uh-huh. I and I, I'll say just for uh, full disclosure, I did a media training session or two with this company, with folks from this company when I first started my business, like almost 20 years ago and uh, haven't had any dealings with them since then over those years. But what I've noticed, because I you know obviously read the news, anytime a story comes up, and we've always said, um, and there are, there are exclusions to this, but I would say that typically a written statement is no substitute for a media interview if you're dealing with a crisis. If you have something serious going on, you don't want to get just an emailed paragraph from someone because you want to be able to ask them follow-up questions. And you, you, it, it's, it's like a bit of a dance, right? Especially when there's important things at stake. And uh, Loblaws has always wanted to just respond to everything with written statements. And you'll see the reporters kind of call that out in the stories. They'll say, uh, responded in by email or sent a written response, which is blah, 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 blah. And so I, th- I think that part of that comes from a, a desire to want to control the, the downside, right? Like, look, we'll, we'll send them our message. Here's what it is. Uh, what's the worst that could happen? You know, they, they put a little thing in there that we didn't want to talk to them, but at least they're not going to rake us over the coals or ask us tricky questions. And so you think you're managing the downside, but I think what happens over time when you end up doing that is journalists, like you're, you're kind of, you can kind of either be putting credits into the bank of goodwill, or you can be withdrawing from the bank of goodwill. And it comes down to reputation. And if I'm a journalist and I've been covering this company for four years, five years, six years, and all I'm getting is written statements from them, no matter what the issue is, when something happens over time, I think you're just going to get, you're going to get worse treatment as a company. I just feel like it's yeah. just human nature. Right. And so you don't see anybody coming to their defense right now. And they are the face of this. Like I talked to you, I go back to the food professor. We're talking about Galen Weston, who has been taking a lot of the heat. He's kind of like the lightning rod. And he said, well, it's kind of like a self-inflicted problem because they made him the spokesperson for the brand and they put him in the commercials with his little sweater. And he said, you know, who's the president of Metro? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, who's the president of Sobe? He's like, I don't know. He's like, exactly. And so those guys are just kind of <laughs> keeping their heads down and letting Loblaws take the hit. But uh, what's interesting is, so to, to bring it back to what you were talking about, they're going into these tweets and these replies and they're replying to people, which that's a legitimate strategy. If it, it is, is it? Well, I, <laughs> go ahead. Well, continue. The first company that did this well is McDonald's. So uh-huh. you may remember a long time ago, this is in the early naive fun days of Twitter, but there were a lot of rumors out in the marketplace about McDonald's that their burgers are made of this and they don't have that and the yeah. chicken, all these really awful things. And so they knew that they were taking a, a hit reputationally and it was kind of just eroding their brand and just their uh-huh. feel about the company. And so they went into Twitter and very famously completely authentically said, ask us anything, ask us anything. Their whole website turned over to it. There was a whole, yeah. yeah, Now the, the, the thing is they did it. They just, they dove in 
like ask us anything. Nothing was off the table. And you felt reading the responses that these were real responses and you might not have liked them all, but you, you felt like at least the company's being transparent. They're telling you the truth. Okay. And that was a huge win. And I think they won like marketing awards. Mm-hmm. And so the problem here is that you have a company for decades that has been doing the exact opposite. Here's our written statement. Here's our written statement. F you. We're not talking to you. I'm not, they didn't actually say that, but that's the, the implication is like, we're not telling here's yeah. our written statement. Here's our paragraph. Go away. And yeah. now, now they're going into your, your DMS and now they're, now they're replying on Twitter <laughs> And it's just, it, first of all, so it's off brand. It feels weird. And then the second thing is once you go in, cause I, I was scrolling down some of these and looking at them today. And what you see is that the people answering the questions, first of all, I don't feel like it's actual accurate, authentic answers. They feel like spin. And so I think what happened here is you have some thin skinned executives who are breathing this kind of rarefied air in the ivory tower who are, who are irritated with what's going on. And they say, well, bring on someone. They brought, brought in some firm, and this was their strategy to go in and respond to people on Twitter. But what you end up seeing is that they have the basically there's like a page of messages that they came up with that are approved. And all the people can do is kind of copy and paste those messages. So you'll see the same message popping up. And I got to say, the wording of some of them is curious. So here's one response verbatim from Loblaws to one of its customers. While we may be the face of food inflation, we're certainly not the cause. Food prices are higher in our stores simply because the manufacturers who make the products are charging more for them. Okay, that's your stance. We may be. No, the but that, I was just hold on a second because that's the that's the, the, the core thing. Because you're absolutely right, and and where I think this is just like I don't understand it. It seems crazy to me. Is that that is demonstrably false? Like that. For this to be true, it's it's uh, Loblaws has not increased their margin by one cent on any product, and I guarantee that is not the case. Like I'm sure if we if 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 you looked at um, uh, if you looked at uh, the manufacturer's price and the and the list price that's charging in the store, they've increased their margin. If, if Loblaws has not increased their margin, and this is accurate, accurate. This is like a blockbuster piece of news that they should be, they should be rolling out spreadsheets and showing people a detail like how they've taken no more money. I, I don't think they're saying it's it's this and it's not that. I think what they're saying is the biggest culprit is, and I, th- I think there's some truth to it that the people in the supply chain, the meat packers and the egg farmers and everyone else, have jacked up their prices. And ultimately, True. I don't, you know, we don't know who those farmers are, but we know who the grocery store is and we see the pinhead mm-hmm. and the sweater. So we get angry at the brand, but, um, it's just the wording of it. And to call we always talk about, don't repeat negative language. We are the face of mm-hmm. food inflation. What a terrible quote that is. And to be pasting it, pasting it, pasting it. And here's another one. And, and like, it's like the attempt to sound, it's the attempt to sound casual, but it, you know, it was written in a boardroom by a bunch of people like yelling at each other. Here's quote. We get it. It's easy to blame grocers for high grocery prices, but on a hundred dollar grocery bill, our profit is less than four dollars. That's and that's paste, 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 paste. You see this one, and like, is that supposed to make me feel bad for the the company? Because you look at their earnings, October twenty second, seventeen point four billion dollars top line, and their uh, earnings revenues were five hundred fifty nine million dollars. So, like, tweet that. You know what I mean? It's the same uh-huh. ratio. But it just, there seems to be, 
Like, it's just such a small little tactic of like, let's go and reply on Twitter. It's off of, it's off brand from what they've been doing for so long. Mm -hmm. And it sounds contrived and stilted and artificial and weird. And it's having, if you look down at the comments underneath, it's having the exact opposite effect of what they were wanting it to do. And, you know, okay, so the other, the other thing I think it's important to recognize is that, so we've been talking about Twitter. Twitter does not reflect the world <laughs> around it. No. And, and in fact, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I thought it did. But, but, the, but like, when you think about the general consciousness of people and the way they take in news, my, my hypothesis is always people will, will, will get like, they'll, they'll take away like the, the underlying concepts. Things like, oh, it's moving faster. Oh, that's taking longer. Um, oh, that's the, those are the good guys in the story. Those are the bad guys in the story. And, and basically, they're trying to put the white hat on themselves and make someone else the villain. And in this case, they're like saying, oh, it's the food manufacturers. I think that is like just so complicated and it requires so much mental gymnastics. The idea that that message is going to be successful and sort of resonating, you know, with people is just, just it doesn't hold, I don't know, it's unrealistic, I think. So they really wanted, if Lavos really wanted to um, to tackle this issue and make space for themselves, um, this is certainly not the way to do it. I think, I think, um, in fact, It, this may be one of those those times where actually doing a lot of nothing may be better until the until things cool down. But I want, I want to circle back on to what you were saying about about Galen Weston. So I was talking to some colleagues you know, yesterday, and of course, um, a lot of young people won't remember, but uh, Loblaws had a spokesperson years ago, Dave Nichols, who um, was sort of the face of their President's Choice brand. He was a rock and star. It, he was a rock star and if people identified with them, he looked like a regular guy. Um, and, uh, but it was explained to me at one point that Loblaws as an organization, had, there was a great amount of tension between the company and him because they almost resented him being the face of the company when he wasn't, you know, sort of the company. And I wonder if there reflex to put the you know the family the head of the family that owns the company in front and center of the window was was almost like a reaction to that historical uh circumstance without actually recognizing that wait a second if we put him out in front uh he owns everything and you know like you and i have i'm sure in the past given clients the same advice where if you're in a crisis like you want to use the ceo judiciously and wait the right moment and like don't necessarily throw them like sometimes you do have to throw them out right away but in in front of the camera to provide that voice but sometimes you you don't like you want to find the right moment to do it but because he's already out there you've kind of taken that decision away from yourself and uh left themselves with not a lot of options it reminds me of that naval ravikant he's got a great quote it's better to be rich and anonymous <laughs> which like what's <laughs> what's the upside and it, yeah. it, 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 who knows? Is it ego wanting to be out there? And the Dave Nichols thing, I remember, it wasn't his thing. It was called the Insider Report. Isn't that his little thing yeah. that he had? It was great. 
And uh, that's a really that's a really astute observation that they might have uh, reacted. And and this is the risk of having a, a spokesperson of that caliber be your your public facing person for many many years. He's been doing that for at least a decade for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now they're trying to unwind some of that. And it's a little bit of a self uh, self fulfilling prophecy. You wanted to be you wanted to be the the face. And now you're the face, and things are not going well. The other thing that it reminds me of is. Um, during the pandemic when they were giving that an added pay, like a couple bucks an hour to their employees, like danger pay because they were working in the stores and no one really knew what was going on and do masks work, do they not? There's no vaccines. And then they immediately just clawed it back and took it away. And again, they're just making so much money. The optics of it are not great. And it's one of those things that you can't, you can't avoid. You know, you're going to have to buy groceries. And I even saw one of their tweets which was not really well received. Someone was complaining, and I, I don't have the exact product on there, but they were complaining about the price of a certain product. And the person tweeting back to them said, well, hey, if you don't like that one, if you can't afford that, maybe try our no-name version of it, right? So it, it just, it's, I think they thought that this would be uh, trendy and kind of like we're, we're, we're getting in there and being hip. And it just, it's it comes across as, your grandma trying to be cool and it, it it's really off brand. If they had been a more forthcoming brand that dealt with the media and had done those interviews over the years and had put some of those credits in the bank, I think they, uh, they might not even be in the, in the place they're in today owning this mess. But um, if I'm the, the CEO of uh, some of their com- competing grocery stores, specifically Metro and Sobeys, you're just kind of uh, keeping your head down and laughing and in a line that I talked to the food professor, uh, uh, Sylvain Charlebois, what he said is, you get the food regime you deserve. He said, no matter where you are, you get the food regime you deserve. And he said, where were people crying and yelling in the streets when all these takeovers took place over the last couple of decades when this grocery chain would buy this one? When yeah. No one said anything. And so uh, this has been brewing for, for quite some time. But from a reputational standpoint... Uh, and I, I thought I heard that Loblaws had taken on a crisis management firm in the last couple of weeks. I don't. I, I, I did a search for it. I couldn't find it. Maybe I imagined that, but I thought mm. I heard. Did you hear someone say that? I didn't. So that may or may not be the case. So that could have, maybe I dreamt it because it's uh, it's not online. But anyway, it's. Uh, I'm sure that this will be another one of those stories that will go away. They're too big. Like, what are you going to do? Ultimately, you're going to have to shop there. But the optics, uh, it's like the other stories that we were talking about today with Vancouver Canucks and and Tim Hortons. It's unnecessary. Like, just because you're a big company doesn't mean you need to stomp through the town like Godzilla, kind of smashing everything. You can actually be nice people, do the right thing, take a hit every now and then. Even for Tim Hortons to say, yes, it was an error. We were dealing with mm-hmm. the, the su- supplier. It was an oversight. We apologize. Is that going to kill you? But um, I don't know. Maybe they feel like the they're above crisis communications these days. Well, and then sometimes you're you just by circumstance that puts you in a really difficult position. And like we haven't done anything wrong. Like I don't think anyone's saying Lava's done anything wrong. They're just doing their business. Um, it just they're in a circumstance where just doing their business has made a, it really uncomfortable for them from a public relations standpoint. And, um, um, we have people buying groceries on their credit cards because like, it's just, something's got, everything's going up. The rents are going up. Gas is going up. Food's going up. Yeah. Salaries aren't going up and you have so many people losing their jobs. And so, uh, they end up looking like the villains and, uh, you know, I don't know if there's a, a solution to this. And 
we've seen gas prices go up, gas prices go down. I asked the uh, the guy during the podcast, I said, do you see these prices coming down at any time in the near future? He said, not at all. He says, if anything, they're going to go up. Well, food, food prices are pretty sticky. It's not like, yeah, it's not like other commodities. Um, but you know, I, I have no doubt that this, this too will pass. And, um, you know, the companies like that, they, like they, they also, I think it would be unfair to say, oh, you know, they're, yeah, they're making a lot of money and there's nothing wrong with making a lot of money, but they're also doing things in the community and they're like, those things, those things will come back more front and center. Um, you know, I think, I think a lot of this though is if you can avoid creating issues for yourself, if you're in good circumstances or in challenging circumstances like they're in now, that's sort of, you know, I think where our thoughts are going is how do we, uh, for other organizations, when you look at this, if you're in the same situation or a similar situation, what can you do? What can you avoid? Um, and I think um, uh, for these guys, it, it's you know just there's so much scrutiny on them, um, and, uh, and and it's part created with with the decisions they make. And it reminds you of the bread cartel. Do you remember that story as well? All the grocery yeah. chains had basically colluded on the price of bread and had this huge class action lawsuit again. And I think everybody got like 25 bucks, which is uh, sounds a lot better than a coffee and a donut, I must say. But um, the the joys of, of working in Canada. Those are all the stories we had to talk about today. A bit of a light episode. Anything else you wanted to mention or bring up before we wrap it up? Uh, no, that was, uh, well, you said it was going to be a short one, but I think it was pretty... A pretty good length. We're at 43, 43 mins. All right. That's do you want to close this one out? Uh, okay. So thank you very much, everyone, for, for joining us again. We'll be back again next week with some other reputational uh, hits. You can uh, follow us on Twitter. You can hit us up with questions there, or if you have ideas for things we could talk about, we're always happy to hear those too. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.